Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. The illustrious Jabba bids you welcome. <laughs> I'm going to regret this. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones. And this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And unfortunately, you turned into the uh, Church Planner <laughs> podcast, so you're stuck with us now. One day, me talk pretty. <laughs> I just saw Conan the other day. That's totally what that reminds me of. Oh, gosh. Just yeah. A little, just a little Conan there. Well, hey, guys, welcome to the show. This is a, a very cool show. As you know, recently, we've been inviting guests onto the show. And they haven't just been any guests. They've actually been the guests that uh, Pete didn't know this when we started doing this. We had a chat and I said, hey, uh, we should invite people on. And he said, yeah, I think that sounds good. And then, and I, I don't remember, I'm just taking credit for it. Uh, I don't know if that's actually how it happened. But uh, I think you just told me, uh, we're inviting <laughs> people on. <laughs> oh, okay. And, 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 you know, nobody actually wanted to come on the show, so I had to, to grab people I knew. It's usually and, people who don't know the show that come on it, right? Because right. they're like, oh, okay, uh, sure, I'll be on a podcast. And then they listen to it. Like, I'm kind of worried about, I got Lonnie lined up, <laughs> and I'm like, he's like, I want to listen to your podcast. I'm like, uh, no, no, no. Uh, let me warn I'll you first. I'll send you an episode. Send them, send them a respectable episode. But uh, as you know, welcome to the podcast. This is a Church Planner podcast. We spend the first 30 minutes wasting your time and ours, but we figure your church planning, your life's hard enough. You need to laugh every once in a while. And uh, if church planning teaches you anything, it's how human you are. And so we are going to um, kick straight in to introducing my guests because what we have been doing over the last uh, few weeks now is as we've had guests, they haven't just been any guests, they've been uh, my mentors. And this has been almost kind of like a, uh, a mini series of what I learned from my mentor. And um, 
So my mentor today, I told Pete, there's only two people. I remember Pete saying, I can pee next to any man, right? Like nobody at a urinal next to Pete makes him nervous, right? It could be the president of the United States. Anymore. We should throw that in there. Anymore. But, but, you know, there's two people that I can remember getting nervous around. Now, the the first one was Francis Chan when he came on the podcast and Pete chided me afterwards and said, Hey, you know, you, you, you got nervous on the, and he, he laughed at me and poked fun, which is kind of our friendship. But then the second time I wasn't even on the podcast, I met Carrie Newhoff and it totally floored me because Carrie's as down to earth as they come. And I met him at, at a uh, coffee stand at Exponential thinking, I, 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 you know, it was just, oh, hey, Carrie. And I think it was because he's so tall. I don't think it had anything to do with, with who he was. I think it was just... He was freakishly tall. Carrie, if you're listening, which I know you don't to this podcast. <laughs> um, I did tell him the last time I interviewed him, though, because we interviewed him like three or four times. I interviewed him uh, last time, Pete. You weren't there. You weren't there to stop me. And I told him, yeah, we didn't know who you were before you got big. And so we'd be like, hey, let's get that red-haired guy again. But anyways, this is the longest introduction ever. You can tell I'm putting it off because my, my guest today is uh, one of my mentors, I would say, and it's hard to rank your mentors, but sometimes timing is everything. And at the time where I needed uh, a mentor, a father figure, um, Paul was very much a father figure to Timothy, and this is my Paul. Um, My mentor today is Dan Berg. He was my youth pastor um, he was, uh, if you ever heard me mention my mentor who was bivocational as a minister, he, he was a furniture repairman, taught me most of what I know, taught me mission, taught me, uh, my love for Lloyd Jones, for Spurgeon, uh, taught me, I mean, if you've read reaching the unreached, you've basically, uh, and I, uh, Dan hasn't because I haven't sent him a copy yet. That's a bit of a sore <laughs> point, but but so much of Dan's fingerprints are all over me. God used this man to shape me. He used his wife, Doris, who uh, is part of what we're going to talk about today. She was like a mother in Israel to many lost, broken kids. I mean, you could go on to, to multiple high schools in our, in our city and surrounding cities. You could point at the most broken kids on those campuses and guaranteed um, literally like the truck that had alcoholica and all the spray paint all over it and wrapped around a lamppost and the lead, the girl that had a heart attack in class and blanked out for eight days. These people were in our youth group and God was doing a powerful work. We were hiring punk bands and they were coming to, to concerts and getting saves and the cops had to come because the skinheads would come and they'd <laughs> knock all the amps over and do stage dives and start beating people up outside. And these were some radical things. And, and Dan was this guy at the middle of everything just going, I'm a spectator, but these kids were getting saved. And we're, we're going to dig down a little bit into that. Um, but we're, we're going to also talk about his book today, hard faith. So I guess at this point I should shut up and actually say, Dan, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> well, thank you, Peyton. It's a joy to be here. Um, yes. Awesome to have you. Yes. Uh, it's neat to see what you got happening here. I've, uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I think, I've I think some people I, think it's going to be a little bit more polished than it really is. And then they get on the <laughs> zoom call and they're like, no, you guys really are just hanging out in your house doing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's why I only have this part of my head showing. The rest of me is 
probably not presentable. Now you so, see uh, where I got it from, Pete. See, <laughs> this is my mentor. Like two weeks ago, this is exactly how I looked. See, now you know. <laughs> Kilroy was here. <laughs> so uh, yes, very true. So, man, it is. It is honestly, it's an honor to have you on here. I mean, how do you how do you trace you know uh, someone who really poured into you and shaped you and, you know, so we're going to, I'll stop gushing on you. Pete, Pete, you normally ask you a question, which uh, for you, I know it's a bit of a doozy. <laughs> Pete, go ahead. So uh, Dan, one of the first things we always like to ask is uh, what is your story of how you came to faith? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, I came home from a soccer game. I was playing soccer at the time, and my my dream was to be a professional soccer player. And I came home one day and had just a, a failed relationship. And so on the way home from a, a game, I I picked up a gallon bottle of Vio, and I was going to get drunk off my hiney. And so I came home and sat down on my sofa and put the bottle of VO down and turn on the television and there was dance fever on. Now you guys are probably too young to remember that show. Dance fever. That was a great show. First time I ever saw breakdancing was on dance fever. (laughs) Well, I'm going to (laughs) disappoint you at this point. Um, I turned it on and I saw these people dancing and I saw the uh, gallon bottle of wine that or. Uh, that I was about ready to drink. And I said to myself, what a loser. And I, uh, I just felt this overwhelming sense that my life was going nowhere. And uh, here I am, young, getting ready to get drunk, watching Dance Fever, and that associated with a loser. And I looked up to the ceiling of my apartment in Huntington Beach, California, with all sincerity, like a a little child, because I was a very arrogant man, and the Lord is still working on that. And I said, whoever you are up there, show me what I'm supposed to do. And it wasn't five seconds, and it wasn't 10 seconds. Right around seven seconds, there was a knock at the door. I got up. We had these little blinds, pulled the mini blinds back, and there was a girl standing there with a Bible in her hand. And I opened the door, and she said, is Jeff here, which was my roommate at the time. And I said, no, he's not. She says, would you like to go to church with me? And I said, sure. So we went down, and I heard uh, Pastor Chuck Smith speak on a Sunday night. And she invited me back the next day to a concert and the message came and I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Looking back, I'm thankful that it wasn't a vacuum cleaner salesman that came to the door because I would probably be selling vacuums. That's what was going to get me into heaven. I'm glad it wasn't a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness because I might be riding a bike or wearing a suit, but God hears sincere prayers. And uh, that prayer must have made it right to the throne of God. And 
you saved my soul and I, I praise mm. his name for it. Amen. That's Amen. awesome. That's awesome. Well, Dan, um, nor- normally we would ask our guests, Hey, how'd you get into church planning? And, um, you know, for, for the purpose of this interview, I mean, shoot, man, I, uh, I, I shared a little bit about how you and I connected. Um, I remember my mom, uh, I, I got saved at Calvary Coast Mesa and, um, went to her Episcopal church and, uh, was, was trying to go there for a bit. And the uh, priest took me aside and said, Hey, you know, you're, you're actually what we would call a fanatic. And, uh, I think you need to tone it down. And, um, and I was, I was leading my friends to Christ in, 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 in school and, having these kind of like supernatural experiences. And, and, and I remember once, uh, I, I remember one night I gave my heart uh, to the Lord again. I think that was a process that happened. People asked me when I was saved, I got, I don't know, but I think it happened about 20 times between this month and this month. Cause I kept like repenting and oh, God, I give you everything. And, uh, and I remember um, this one week and it, it was, it was when I got baptized with the Holy spirit. And I remember uh, standing um, to cross the street and, uh, uh, this, you know, I could see all these kids sitting on a wall, Dan, you, you know, you know, some of these kids, um, I could see them all sitting on the wall and I thought, Oh, here we go. I could see that look in their eyes. I was getting ready to cross the crosswalk. Like I got to run this gamut. There were two walls. I had to get into this neighborhood and they just looked like they were waiting for me, man, like vultures. And I thought, I don't know what's coming, but it ain't good. So I prayed. I'm like, God, whatever, whatever happens here, you know, I'm in your hands. And so I walk through. And now keep in mind, I'm like 15 years old. And there's, you know, all these kids sitting on the wall and some of them are pretty. And uh, one of them goes, one of the boys goes, hey, uh, you, uh, you a virgin? And everybody just starts laughing. And I was a virgin. So it was like, yeah, I got to answer this question. Um, not going to lie about it. No, no, man. I've been with a million women, you know? And, and so I, I, I say, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. And they all start laughing. And, but God just gave me this confidence. And I go, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I am. But it's by choice. Uh, you know, boom, boom, boom. And I just start sharing my butt off and witnessing. And that day, like six of those kids came to faith and that was the Foldies and Sarah Meyer. And, you know, there was, uh, some, somebody else, I can't remember who the other kid was. Um, but it, it was, it was like, Oh, okay. I guess this is, this is kind of what happens. And, um, so about that time, my mom goes, Hey, uh, there's a Calvary chapel at, uh, in Westminster, the, uh, uh, you know, the Chapman heading adult education center I teach at. Now I wasn't very sanctified. So I said, mom, shut up. There isn't right. Cause I, I was saved, but God was still doing a lot of work and, uh, wasn't talking very nice to my mom at that point. And, and she goes, no, no, honey, there is, there's a, uh, there, there's a, there's a Calvary. It's another cat. No, mom, there's only one Calvary chapel. She goes, okay, fine. So a few more weeks later, she said, Hey, I talked to them and yes, they are a Calvary chapel. And they said, they'd love to have you. And there's a youth group there. So it was on a Wednesday night. I came along. Uh, it was the Christmas party that year. And I met, I met you guys all. And I just remember you being super cool. And we laughed a lot. Like we just hit it off right away, just laughing and talking about stuff. And I didn't know anything about anything. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm going to like a million different youth groups. I just, anywhere my friends go, I go. 
And you, you looked at me and it was prophetic. And you said to me, that's cool and all. Oh, oh yeah. I told you, oh yeah, I teach a Bible study over in this park because these kids have been getting saved. And you go, yeah, that's cool and all. But uh, Peyton, you, I think you're heading into a time where you need to be a student and not a teacher. And, and, and there's just times people say something, you know, it's like, you know, like I was arrogant enough to think as a brand new believer, I was going to teach all these kids. And, and I went, oh, huh. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't argue with it. It was a Holy Spirit. And I went, okay. And I started coming along and I said, hey, I got all these other, you want me to bring them too? And Dan goes, sure. Yeah, bring them. Great. And uh, that was kind of the start of our relationship together. And some of these crazy whacked out kids started coming in the beginning. They weren't so bad. It was, it was later, right? When the Lord started <laughs> popping off. So yes. Dan, the question I want to ask, that's how you and I met. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about our relationship, but, uh, but what, you know, what are your memories of those days, man? Tell us what happened over the next couple years. Cause I mean, you were a youth master, youth pastor, minding your own business. And then boom, it all went. Fire in Britain, I'd say it all went Pete Tong, and everybody would know what that meant. <laughs> Tell us what it means. <laughs> well, you know, of course, it's a very long story, and I'll, I'll try to keep it short. But the, the call to understand Jesus Christ in the world that was rejecting him left and right was uh, one that I found uh, interesting and scary at the same time, as you know. The fact that a message that I had heard that had changed my life and caused the direction of my life to change in such a radical way that I was losing friends and family was distancing themselves from me. I knew there had to be something here. Um, on the outward, I'm sure people looked at me and thought that I was uh, losing my mind, but I had a peace in my heart, and and this was what gravitated me towards. Uh, wanting to get the message out to the most hungriest group of people there was. And that was interesting because it happened simply with the pastor approaching me and saying, I'd like to start a youth group. And uh, we only had one kid who was going to the church at that time. And so it, it began that way. And, and you came in shortly uh, after that, Peyton, and that's when it really started to take off because I I didn't have the training of a, a youth pastor through any seminary. Um, just what I was experiencing by sharing the gospel personally myself. And that, to me, I think is what I saw in you, is that you weren't looking for anything that was going to in a sense, set you apart as a teacher in the church, but you saw yourself as someone who was a preacher of the word in a world that needed to be saved. And I think that the difference a lot of times is that we, we look at the church as the end all, when actually it should be the sending um, portion of our lives, that we go out into a world we preach the gospel. The church is there to support us and to help us. We come back, get refreshed. We move back out again. We meet on Sundays. We get the gospel out on Monday. 
And I think that that's what I saw in you at a young age, is that you weren't churchy, if I can use that word. You were a kid that was in love with Jesus, and I think that that's what happened. So I was excited to see that, knowing that that would be some kind of a change at some point, but not ever realizing that I would be sitting here today talking to you of years and years of a faithful God who is still telling me to this day, get the word out, Dan. That's awesome. And you're a pastor now um, up in Oregon. Yes. And, uh, and you know, it was amazing because watching you back then, like, that was, that was true of you as well, everything you just said. And, and I always tell people, the mission in me came from you. Um, that was your mission. And, and I can remember, we were this little church plant. I, I think when I got there, there couldn't have been more than 50 people in it, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe less. Yeah. And it, and it grew. I mean, it exploded. But I can remember a time where the youth group was like, I, I don't remember how big it got, but it, it was twice the size of the congregation. Yes. Um, even as the church was growing and, and it was almost kind of like, you know, at times people may come as like, is the tail wagging the dog, man, this thing is just exploded and, uh, yeah. miraculous, um, conversions. Um, uh, just, we saw like, I saw exorcisms, you know, because of the kind of people yes. we were, we're dealing with, you know, I remember the first exorcism was in our youth group. And I mean, yes. Somebody had goo flying out of their face and the, you know, I mean, we, we saw healings. I mean, there, there were these crazy things popping off that, that youth group was intense and it prepped me for everything. Those, those nights at Murdy park were scary. And to this yes, day, they were. Pete's been with me in refuge long beach. I could not have done this stuff that I did. Um, there or been a part of, I say I did, I, I didn't do anything, but I mean, I, I couldn't, I would not have had the faith if that preparation, I, I probably would not have had the faith to be a missionary overseas in a place like Wales, if God had not um, shown that he really was the God uh, of the New Testament. And that's kind of where reaching the unreached, that's why I say it's got your fingerprints all over it. But we're here really um, today to talk about your book. Um, book here, very attractive book, I must say, uh, by Daniel, Daniel M. Berg, it says, but it, it, only his mom calls him Daniel. We've already established that on this call, but, uh, but Dan wrote a book and it is a phenomenal book. Dan is a very good writer. He is, um, he is one of the best preachers that, that I've ever heard. Um, his discipleship classes, um, that he used to run on Saturday nights are still some of my favorite times ever at church. They were discussion-based. So again, his finger fingerprints are on me there. But uh, this book, Dan, this is kind of the book when everything was going well and when everything, you know, seemed to be like the world was your oyster. I mean, things were just yes. happening. You You were put on staff as an assistant pastor and in a growing church, a mega church, and the and the that yes. that you were you know instrumental in helping to 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 grow and to build. At that moment, you know, like the cover of the book shows, shattered glass. Um, your life shattered. Um, I was just wondering if you could walk us through and tell us some of the story because this book is one of the most powerful books I've ever read, and that's not because you're my mentor. It was a mm -hmm. I can't put this book. Down. Are, are you going to tell us what the title of it is? Because did I'm I not say hard faith? I 
Okay, I'm hard still faith, leave. Pete. Hard okay. faith. Thank you. There, you happy? I am. <laughs> Available Sorry, Dan. This is are sold. Sorry, Dan. This is a, a very serious podcast. Uh, back to what I was saying, Dan. <laughs> back to you, Dan. Yes, sir. Yes. Well, um, I will do my best to uh, tell you a story um, that, as Peyton said, it was as though I had the Midas touch um, being looked at that way. And I uh, was working at the time uh, repairing furniture was also making pizzas. I don't know if Peyton remembers that, but was also making pizzas and delivering them, and uh, and then working with the youth as well. So it was a it was a busy time. Um, things were happening. Just we would we would pack out this rec center with bands and kids coming to know Christ, and um, my wife was beginning to get tired. We had two small children at the time. And uh, I noticed that at times she would, she would kind of get a little frustrated. And my wife is a very sweet lady, gentle lady. And at times I would see her um, get upset in ways I'd never seen her before. But I was out saving the world. And so I remember I came home one night. Our children had both, uh, my daughter was born with a flat voice box. And so she, uh, she had to be monitored through the night. We had taken her in and the doctor said that we were considering putting a trach in her, but if we just monitored her, maybe uh, she would be okay. And, and then my son began to have seizures. Um, so she was, you know, tired out to say the least by taking care of two children that had a lot of needs. And I was out preaching and doing what I, what I was doing. Um, one night she, uh, she came in and said she couldn't sleep because I would just come home and crash on the sofa at night. And I said, okay, honey, we'll just go try to get some sleep. And this happened for seven nights in a row without her getting any sleep. And on the seventh night, she, uh, she came in and fell on the floor and said she was going to hell. I, uh, I was shocked but I knew something was really, really wrong here for my wife to say something like that. So I contacted a friend of ours and she came over and she said, uh, need to put her in the hospital immediately, Dan. And if you don't, I will. Because she, she knew that I, uh, I was weighing things out at that moment. Was I ready to admit to this or not? And, uh, and so I put her in a, a mental hospital, and that was a tough night. Um, she hung on to me and begged me not to leave her there. Um, I came home 
to a house with two small children that wanted their mommy. And um, I found myself asking a lot of questions that night. The rest of it is a, a story of, um, of an amazing God in a very difficult place. And so the reason why I wrote the book is because everybody's got a story. I didn't think my story was any different, but it was enough for me to write a book to, to let other people know if they find themselves in a place like this that there is a God who goes to such depths, such darkness, to show a love and a compassion and a mercy that we can't translate until we've allowed him into the deepest part of that hurt. And when he comes into the deepest part of that hurt, a translation comes and you understand when Paul said a fellowship of suffering. There's a language there. There are people there. There are experiences that can't be explained. And the book is, a, is to just maybe hope that when you find yourself in that place that uh, you're going to come out with some hard faith. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, I had to look up the, the review that I, that I wrote for this, and I would tell planners to grab this book because um, this actually, Pete, was in our book reviews for Jump School that we would offer to planners um, this is, wait, wait, this is, wait, 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 um, you said <laughs> jump, school. jump school. I have no idea which jump school you're hey, talking Pete, about. Did you the know DVD? I'm writing, did you know I'm writing a textbook? I, it's I called jump text, school. Isn't I it? almost texted you last night. Hey, I got a title, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, it, when, when we included this in our training for planners, um, we had books that we would ask them to get and read. And this book was in there, um, because, you, what you started off with, hey, I was, I was busy out saving the world um, at a time where the allure of megachurch ministry was, was so hard. And I mean, to be honest, I didn't see a great imbalance going on on the outside. But I remember when this started happening and Doris started struggling. And trust me, as a, as a dad who has a special needs daughter who uh, for years stopped breathing in the middle of the night, I remember those times. I remember you telling me Gabe stopped breathing last night. I had to hold him in the bathtub under the running water. I remember all of that. And then years later to, to find myself in that same scenario, I know how draining it is as a parent and how it just, it, it, it takes everything out of you. Like you walk around sometimes, you don't know why you're so tired, you know, yeah. and it's this exhaustion that, that people can't, uh, you can't communicate. You you don't even know. Like, there's no guidebook with this. People, you you retroactively figure it out later. But um, but I wrote in this review, um, having witnessed the majority of Dan's testimonies a third party, I was amazed to read the honest portrayal of a man who held to his integrity like Job and lived what he preached. To most of us on the outside, it appeared to us as it must have looked to Job's friends. But somehow God was punishing him. I'm sorry to add that most of us found ourselves miserable comforters as well. Having read 
this book by one of the heroes of my young life. He stands even higher in my esteem. Now, God was teaching him more during that time than he wanted to know. The lesson shared, though, with these short number of pages is a condensed version of much of what he preached, distilled with tears through the filter of grief. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, David was like a rose. If you crushed him, he gave off a sweeter fragrance. He was also like an olive. When you crushed it, the more of the Holy Spirit flowed out of him. This book goes against the grain of most of the feel-good preaching we hear so often, pul- pulpiteers pentering positivity. Dan Doris and the family learned hard faith firsthand. In the pulpit, Dan was a master communicator, and his writing proves to be just as rich in illustration. But Dan's book calls a believer to learn life lessons from God firsthand, because in some cases, we may find he is all we have. And that definitely, reading the book was was kind of, I mean, it was 11 years, right? Like, in a time where people didn't know how to deal with something. Like, like you know, I was a psychiatric nurse. Um, Doris I, it's so funny because God has done such a miracle in her life that um, I can normally tell. I I can't even see any trace of it now in Doris. Like yeah. it is literally a miracle that God has done in that woman's life. But you know what? What's really interesting is it it wasn't a quick fix for you, and you wrote this at the end of a marathon journey of dealing with yeah. this. It wasn't just a a flash in the pan. It was a long haul. Um, tell us a little bit more about that and where the first breakthrough happened for you. I would say for me to understand exactly what I was up against happened uh, when Doris was in a, uh, a hospital there in Southern California. And she was telling me that if I could find out these answers that she had, that she would know that God loved her. And uh, so she had me uh, find out if if the police department was wanting to arrest her. And so I knew <laughs> that my sweet wife was not wanted by the police, but I thought if I went down to the Costa Mesa Police Department, they could write up a little thing and I could bring it back to her. Which, by the way, by the way, Doris is the sweetest lady on the planet. Like, she is. Yeah. Yeah. And so that day, Barney Fife happened to be working at the counter. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, began a hundred questions of why he couldn't write this up. <laughs> and I told him, I said, could you just please just write on a piece of paper you are not being wanted by the police. And he told me that he couldn't. And so I gave him a little card and I said, just write not wanted on the back. And, uh, and so he did, I got that out of him. And <laughs> I, uh, so I left there, came back and told her, look, it's a police card. And it says not wanted on the back. And she says, well, that's not good. It's funny uh, having mental illness. You're you're attuned in some areas to know exactly what you want, and she did. So the next thing she told me, she said, uh, "If you can go and talk to Pastor Chuck Smith, and if he says that I'm going to heaven, I will believe you. But you need to have him call me." Now, Pastor Chuck Smith 
as you guys know, had a church that was humongous back then. Mm. And, and then he didn't know me from anyone. And uh, so I got up really early in the morning thinking that maybe I could get there when he drove up in his car and that I could get him to call my wife. And uh, so uh, I got there and Romaine showed up first. And Pastor Romaine uh, took me into the office and told me that he would call her. And he did. And then when he got off the phone, he says, she's not the one that's got the problem. You're the one that's got the problem. And he began to lay into me. I was pretty tired and upset at that point. I said, I don't need to hear this. And I walked out. I think that him and I began a relationship at that point because um, I stood up to him. And I don't know, at some point, maybe he respected me standing up to him, but I was so tired. I really uh, wasn't there to listen to him tell me things I already knew about myself and that I had failed, those things that I had to deal with. But uh, taking care of two small children, a wife in a mental hospital, you had to, you know, have those times when if you're going to speak truth to me, I better be ready to hear it because of all the stuff that was going on. So over a period of time, he realized that, um, that, that she wasn't getting the help and that she wasn't getting better. So I came into him one time and asking uh, if he had anybody else that, that, uh, that she could talk with. And it was a, a, an interesting moment because the church at that time was not uh, wanting to talk about mental illness. It was taboo. I had taken her to several churches. They had told me that she was demon possessed. I had others tell me that she wasn't born again. Um, Nothing but rejection from one church after another. And he pulls this card out. And it was almost like he looked to the right and to the left. I love the man. I know he's, he's passed on. But he hands me this card, and he says, this is the card we give to people whom we can't help. And I went, wow. Hmm. I felt like Willy Wonka and the, got the, chocolate, the golden chocolate bar, you know. And, and I just, uh, I went, wow. So I, I came back, and I, I called her. And she brought us in, and she, and she asked Doris to come in first. And so she talked with Doris and, uh, and then called me in, and I came in and sat in the office. And I had sat in many of these offices over the time. I think we we're probably at the four-year mark at this point of this, this trial. She asked Doris, Doris, where are you going? And Doris said, I'm going to hell. She turned to me and she says, Dan, where is Doris going? And I said, she's going to heaven. She turns back to Doris again and says, Doris, where are you going? And Doris knew I hated to hear this. And she says, I'm going to hell. She turns to me and she says, Dan, where is Doris going? At this point, I am very upset. And I said to her, she's going to heaven. Like I was about ready to walk out of that a counseling appointment thinking what a colossal waste of time this is. 
she turns back to Doris and she says, Doris, where are you going? And Doris, looking to the ground, knowing that I did not want to hear it, said again, I'm going to hell. Something happened at that point. I don't know exactly what it was, but it, it's like, you know, when you hear from the Lord, everything goes quiet in your mind. And your mind focuses on one thing. And that's what took place. It, was, it wasn't, I was so angry and upset that my mind calmed down so quickly. Within a millisecond, my mind just went quiet. And for once through this whole thing, was I able to really hear my wife. The scripture tells us that, you know, we're, we're to, to work to understand our wives, leads to our, our prayers be hindered. And that is one thing I was not trying to do was to understand my wife. I was trying to tell her, this is what you should do. This is what you should believe. But never taking the time to understand her. And I had this overwhelming sense come over me that this is exactly where she thought she was going. And I turned to the counselor and I said, she's going to hell. And the counselor looked at me and she says, now you know where you need to go. And that was mind blowing. I, uh, I remember taking Doris back to the hospital and, driving home that night and beginning to think about all that came from that statement. But the way my mind works, I, I thought, this is the first time I've paid somebody $70 an hour to tell me to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> but it was $70 that was worth it. Because hmm. at that point, I knew to truly understand her. And I know maybe some of your listeners may not understand this, Peyton, but I had to get transformed in order to understand my wife. At that time, I had women calling me and wanting to date me. Some were offering more. And I knew that those temptations were coming hard and fast. I knew that God was not telling me what other people were telling me. I had friends and family telling me to leave her, to get on with my life. But God was not telling me that. Hmm. And so a transformation had to take place in order for the, me to be able to adapt to the, the new life I would be living, a life of understanding my wife's hell. And so I stopped brushing my teeth, I stopped shaving as, as much, I stopped bathing as much. In a sense, I began to understand her through that. I know that sounds a little bizarre, but that was the world that God was calling me to be in. Hmm. And I had to be able to love her in that world. It just reminded me of Philippians chapter two. Hmm. He humbled himself. Hmm. Came as a man. And he was asking me to love my wife in a very, very dark place. 
Hmm. That was the first big change. It's interesting because um, during that time, I mean, your book is brutally honest. And, um, you know, I mean, you you mentioned being on a job and driving down Pacific Coast Highway and even thinking, man, I, I know I got t- kids to take care of, but what if I just jerk this wheel to the left, you know, right now or, or, or even to the right, you know? Um, it, it was a tough time. And, and I think one of the things that the book really brings out is – um, not only did you go through something, um, you went from being this preacher that that God had really used, I mean, very powerfully, to all of a sudden having to live these things. And not that you weren't living it before, brother, because I knew you then. Um, wasn't like you were on some, you know, walk through Disneyland prior to that. But it, it, like, kind of like how I mentioned, like, you know, like Joe's comforters, like, nobody knew how to even interpret what you're going through. I mean, I think we live in a different time right now where it's still not great um, regarding mental illness. But back then it was like, you were like Lewis and Clark, man. There was nobody had been over those mountains yet and turned around and told everybody, Hey, here's a roadmap, you know, here's the routes you need to take. Um, And so when this book came out to me, this was an important book simply because you had navigated it. But that word faith, there was always kind of this thread of faith all the way throughout. And now I, I, I can tell you this, um, for those of you that don't know uh, Dan, we're asking him to, to kind of relive some, um, some very painful things. Um, and yet, um, Dan is the guy that when I call him, we spend the majority of the call laughing, right? And cracking jokes. Dan is the mentor who taught me that you can have the Holy Spirit just ripping through you, you know, that, that when you are weak, he is strong. And that is what Dan taught me more than any other lesson was, like I said, Dan would make fun of himself and go, look, hey, I'm, I'm this old guy, you know, like he was in his 30s. We were trying to figure out how old he was, but he would put on this grandpa voice. Um, and, and grandpa would make appearances and cameos in his sermons, but, but Dan was, he never took himself seriously, but he took God very seriously. And so we knew what it was to experience the, the, the anointing of the Holy spirit and immediately go from watching all these kids radically transform, giving their hearts to Christ. Like I said, cops busting punkers, you know, and, and skinheads and, um, people getting set free from demonic possession, like radical, like I don't even know how to explain it if you weren't there. But to go immediately from that, did Dan and me to, de- to decompress after these nights of hardcore ministry, <laughs> watching Yo MTV raps and laughing till we cried, you know, heckling rap videos. And, and there was this sense of, Dan just always knew how to laugh and he still does. Like that's, that's the great thing. And I think that was the biggest takeaway, but Dan, what kind of part did laughter play in God's healing process for you guys as a family? Cause he mentioned well, you, that in the no. book. Yeah. Um, humility is an untapped comedic resource. Um, true humility. Um, uh, when you really take a seriously look at, at yourself and 
and realize the place you're in. You have choices to make. Um, you can look at it and and see it as, oh my gosh, it's all over with, or there's got to be fun somewhere in this. And it is amazing. My uh, my daughter is probably, and my son, I uh, I love them both dearly. But they became a comedy team during this time. Uh, they they would get things going, and I would be laughing. I remember one time driving in the car, and they they did this little thing, and they had me laughing so hard, my stomach was aching, and I couldn't see straight. And they learned laughter. They learned jokes. They learned humor. They learned not to take themselves seriously because it was the only thing that we had. And uh, I remember one day, you know, when Doris began to laugh Hmm. and just sitting there and crying because of her laughter. Hmm. I, I saw it, and she even says to this day that it had such an impact on her healing is to watch her children and her husband laugh. Hmm. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, I asked him, you know, to come over for dinner. And I couldn't get him quite the directions of the trailer park we were living in. And he said, so I got out of my car and I began to walk around thinking that maybe I would just yell your name and you'd come out of your trailer or whatever. He says, but I heard this trailer with a bunch of people laughing and he says that's got to be where they live Hmm. sure enough it was and doris was a part of that that laughter um i mean there Hmm. there were things that that happened that you develop a strange sense of humor (laughs) in mental hospitals yep and um you know and and realizing that that uh, the people in the hospitals are probably more well off than the people that are not in the hospitals uh, because they're dealing with the realities and truths of life. And unfortunately Mm. for many, it drew them to places where they had to be hospitalized, but many of them uh, to bring able to be laughter to them uh, was, was such a joy. And I, and I, as a child, we had a difficult childhood as you, as most kids Coming up these days do, and uh, we learned humor at a at a very young age. So uh, yeah, I, I I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. It does, and I think that um, you know the, it's interesting. Like you mentioned that sense of humor, Pete and I have that. Pete's dad was a minister, and uh, <laughs> you know he he saw some of the sides of life. But as for me, as a firefighter, as an RN, dealing with death at a very young age, and you know eventually. Uh, uh, you mentioned the home we grew up in, you know, the, the home I grew up in wasn't always pretty. And, uh, and at the end of the day, I mean, I was a psych nurse and I, I agree with that 100%, 100% spot on. And, and the first thing that ever stuck out to me about working in the psychiatric hospital, I, this is the thing is movies have not done credit, you know, over 50% of the population has been diagnosed with uh, some type of anxiety or depressive disorder. That is that is crazy, right? Ten percent of the population has schizophrenia of some type. Could just be paranoia, could be mild, whatever. So uh, my my view when I got out of the the work in the psychiatric hospital, the first thing that hit me was there are two two major takeaways. One was 
everybody in there was a just like me. They weren't weirdos. They weren't like what you see on Hollywood. They were normal people you work with, you live next to, that have, have ended up at a place where they can't, they need help. They can't cope with it by themselves anymore. And I, I'll never forget being in the psychiatric hospital. And I was normally on the, the lockdown unit. There was a high functioning unit where um, people weren't a danger to cells. If I was on the extremely violent lockdown, um, but if I went over to the higher functioning, I had not long uh, left being on staff at a megachurch. Every time I went to that wing, someone would say, Pastor Peyton, and they'd start crying. Like, what are you doing here? You know, and, and, oh, I, I was praying that a pastor would, and it, it was like, really like in our church, we never, like even then, cause this is the nineties still. And, and I was like, nobody, we, we're not equipped as the church to deal with this. You know, we, we, we don't even talk about it. But, um, but yes, definitely developing that uh, sense of humor is a survival skill. And I think that um, even Spurgeon, you know, I mean, you kind of taught me about Spurgeon and humor. And uh, Lloyd-Jones, towards the end of his life, who, who abhorred the use of humor in the pulpit and illustration, for that matter, um, at the end of the life said, yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> people, don't, people don't usually tell you that part, but that, that, that's yeah. what he said. So Dan, I want to thank you. Um, the book is Hard Faith. If you want to get a copy of this book, um, you know, definitely uh, let us know. Um, I don't know if it's still available for sale. Is it, Dan? Is it the kind of thing well, where? It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's on Is Amazon. It still on Amazon? I yeah. looked for it and mm-hmm. I couldn't find it. Okay, well, go to Amazon, guys. Go to, honestly, go to Amazon and type in "Hard Faith Daniel M. Berg." There you go. I did. My Amazon's stupid. All right, well, guys, <laughs> definitely check it out. My guest has been Dan Berg. Do not call him Daniel M. Berg. That's his writing name, but he's Dan to me and you. And uh, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. We we love. I, I love you to bits. I love Doris to bits. And I um, want to thank you for opening up and sharing this very vulnerable part of your life. But I know it's, you know, it's part of who you are. It's part of what you do. So I want to thank you for that. And uh, Pete, you know. Are you seriously going to transition <laughs> after this talk? <laughs> Pete, while you're doing all that laughter and that laughing and I oh, see, I can't do it. I can't. Dan, every time, every time we do a podcast, we transition uh, seamlessly. If we're a guy who's talking about doing this, we say, you know what? You're doing all that. You don't have time. I can't do it. So, Hey, while you're having to deal with trauma in your family, uh, so you can't do it. You can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) There is no trick. Okay. Uh, Hey Pete, I want to tell you about simplified church. It's a bookkeeping (laughs) service that (laughs) Dan, this is why we have no sponsors. Uh, <laughs> we ruin their commercials. We ruin it. We ruin, it. and they know that, and they love us about it because they know our audience is church planners. So, uh, church planners, if you have not gotten Simplify Church yet, you're just stupid. How's that? <laughs> That's a horrible commercial. Okay, all right, all right. See, it threw me off my game because we couldn't transition. Hey, guys, uh, Simplify Church. This will be the best ad we've ever done for them. Simplify Church. You know, guys, you don't have time to do all your bookkeeping. Your IRS compliance, your end of year tax giving donor receipts. Wait, what? You didn't know you had to do those? Uh, Yeah, you did. And the deadline was January 31st. So you need to get simplifychurch.com. They are a team of professionals that will help you do all your bookkeeping and IRS compliance. They even have a giving portal now. What? If you haven't set that up, 
they said, Pete, I'm not even letting you join in. Okay. So, uh, uh, you want to add anything to that? Because I was Simplifychurch.com. on a roll. Yep. Boom. Right there. Well, guys, hey, this has been Peyton Jones and Pete Mitchell and Dan Berg. And we've been reminding you today, if you want to reach the ones nobody is reaching, you need to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Thank you.